I'd like to draw your attention now, brothers and sisters, to the Word of the Lord as we find it in the book of Hebrews, the epistle or sermon to the Hebrew Christians to whom the author writes. We're in chapter 3, going to be picking up where we left off last week in verse 7, and it was no easy task, brothers and sisters, to decide where to stop preaching this morning. Because this whole section all the way into chapter 4 is a unit of thought. And so I've decided to end our sermon this morning, or the text that we'll be looking at at verse 13. So we'll be reading through the end of verse 13, and then we'll pick up next week where we left off there. So, brothers and sisters, as I read this, I want to remind you that this is the word of the one true living God. And so it's my prayer that we would receive it as such together. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We ask now for you to teach us the way of your statutes, that we might endure and keep them to the end. Give us understanding, we pray, that we might keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in them. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's sad but true that we can all probably think upon reflection of numerous aspects of our lives, various ventures in our lives, things that we've started out doing really well, and then ended really poorly, right? And I'm not going to take your time, because I could spend a month of Sundays telling about you about the things in my life that have started well and ended poorly, and my assumption is that you have many things in your life that you can reflect on, that you started well, that ended poorly. And you know, the problem is not necessarily most of the time the beginning or the end. What's the problem? It's that gap in between, isn't it? 
It's that middle section. It's that those in-between times where your resolve is tested, where your will is tested. Am I going to do what is necessary to get from point A to point C by doing point B over a long extended period of time? The reality is that's more often than not where we fail, isn't it? And you know, I can't think of a better way to summarize the experience of the nation of Israel from the time of the exodus to the time when they entered into the promised land. They started really well, didn't they? And then they end poorly. Let me remind you briefly of that history. The Lord hears the cries of His people sends his servant Moses to do incredible wonders and plagues, raining these down on the the heads of the Egyptian gods and those who are enslaving them, because God's people, the Israelites, are in slavery. And so he's going to deliver them. And then he does. But then Pharaoh says, no, I'm actually going to come get you. He pursues them up to the Red Sea. God's people cross it as if on dry land. It's not even muddy, it's dry And then he causes the waters to come back together and to collapse and consume the Egyptian army. So that the people come out, we're told in Exodus 15, and 1.5 million Israelites are rejoicing and saying, the horse and the rider, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord has triumphed mightily with his arm. Can you imagine what a party that would have been? And then yet, immediately what happens shortly thereafter is what? Start grumbling, start complaining, don't believe the Lord, don't trust Him, that, they're, that He's for them and not against them. And so what ends up happening after their wilderness wandering for 40 years, by the time they enter into the promised land, how many actually get to go in of that generation that saw what the Lord did in the Exodus? Two. Joshua and Caleb. We'll look more at that in a, mi- in a minute. But what's the point? They started out so well in the Exodus. But they got way off track through their hardness of heart and the wilderness wanderings. And so they ended poorly by the time they entered into the promised land. And here's why I bring that up. The author of the book of Hebrews, by taking us to Psalm 95 this morning, is saying, listen, church, the church that he's writing to, the Hebrew Christians that he's writing to, that are tempted to go back to Judaism after they've heard the gospel and been brought into the church. He's saying, listen, you're in a similar situation that Israel was in during their wilderness wanderings. Why? Because you're in this weird, historic, redemptive tension. You're in between this exodus, this better exodus that Jesus has brought about in His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then the rest, the Sabbath rest of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you will then enter into when you close your eyes in death or Jesus comes back. But you see, in the meantime, you're in this in-between time. You're in the now of the kingdom that Jesus brought and the not yet of the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring in his second coming. And so you're in this odd tension where you're tempted, you're tried, you're in the wilderness. And the temptation is to doubt the Lord, to allow your heart to be hardened towards him, to turn away from him, and to return back to the slavery in the world that you once knew. And so his point is, don't do it. Don't be unfaithful in that way. Instead, endure and persevere to the end. 
And so the, the thing that he's really highlighting for us, the question that he's dealing with, and he focuses in on this in every page of this letter, this epistle, this book. It's how do we persevere in the faith till the end. So we don't just start well, we finish well. And what he's trying to show his audience is he's saying you need to remember Israel. If the last two sermons were called in light of Hebrews 3 verse 1 that we are to consider Jesus, this morning we are to consider Israel and to consider how they failed in their relationship with the Lord and as a result what the Lord did to them. So there's three things, three realities that the author wants us to remember this morning. First of all, he wants us to remember so that we might persevere to the end. He wants us to remember Israel's rebellion. We'll see that in verses 7 through 9. Second of all, during this wilderness period. Secondly, we'll see how we need to remember God's wrath in response to Israel's rebellion. We'll see that in verses 10 and 11. And then lastly, we'll see how we need to remember our responsibility. In light of this negative example that we're shown in Israel, how we need to remember our responsibility uh, to ourselves and to one another. And we'll see that in verses 12 and 13. And here's something I want us to remember as we think through this. Who is the one that causes us to endure and persevere to the end? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? The ones The elect that the Father has given to the Son in eternity past, the Son will keep us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we endure until the end, right? Isn't that what Paul says to the Philippians? I'm confident of this very thing, Philippians 1 verse 6, that he who began a good work in you, there's the good beginning, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's Jesus' return when we enter into that Sabbath rest. And so who's the one that keeps us in this in-between time? It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit graciously working to keep us. But here's the thing. He provides us with means of preservation. And we need to make use of those means. And some of those means are put before us this morning by remembering Israel's example as we see that in Scripture. So let's look first then at how we need to remember Israel's rebellion. Look at verse 7 with me. And I'm just going to read that first little line there. I'm not going to read the rest of the verse. And hopefully you'll see why I do that in a moment. Verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now again, we're reminded that every time that word therefore pops up, it's because the author is showing us that everything he's about to say logically is connected to everything that he just said. Everything that he just said in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. And what has he told us in a nutshell? That Jesus, as the one who has brought about a new covenant, is greater than Moses, who administrated the old covenant. Why? Because Moses served God's people, God's house, as a servant. And he was faithful in that. But Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son, as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who came and took on flesh that the new covenant might be cut by His being killed on the cross for us. And so Jesus is greater than Moses. They're both faithful, but Jesus is greater than Moses. Now here's the thing. In light of the faithfulness of Jesus and Moses, we're now shown the negative example of Israel's unfaithfulness. 
It's like a warning saying, don't be like them. Don't rebel in this in-between time that you're in right now. Instead, trust the Lord, believe the Lord, love the Lord. And so he's continuing his argument. It's very logical, uh, this entire argument throughout this entire book. And yet, what does he say? He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, that should immediately pique your interest. Why? Have we seen much of the Holy Spirit thus far in the book of Hebrews? We haven't, have we? You want to see where you've seen him? Go to Hebrews chapter 2 and look at verse 4. Hebrews 2 verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this is only the second time that we've seen the Holy Spirit referenced to. And what's the Holy Spirit doing? He's speaking. Interesting, isn't it? We've heard from all three persons of the Godhead now, haven't we, speaking to us. First, look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. We hear the Father speak. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, Jason, how do you know that's the Father? Keep going in verse 2. But in these last days, He, that is God, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So really, we have the Father speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament, right? And now we have the final word of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ Himself speaking as well, don't we? And then we see Jesus speaking again in, look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The gospel is that great salvation. He goes on to say, it, that is the gospel, the great salvation, was declared at first by the Lord. Who's the Lord? The Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who declared this gospel to us. And now here in chapter 3, we have the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Do you see the care and attention that our triune God has for you? Each person speaking to you, wanting to encourage you so that you endure and persevere to the last. Brothers and sisters, how dare we neglect this word in which the triune God has chosen to speak to us. But notice the tense of the verb here, as the Holy Spirit says. He doesn't say, as the Holy Spirit said back in Psalm 95, because, right, that's what he goes on to cite here. And he also doesn't say, as David wrote. Obviously, David wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Spirit who is speaking directly to us. And how is he doing that? Through the sacred scriptures that were written. And so the point is, he didn't just speak in Psalm 95, he's now speaking to you today as I write this letter to you, church. And brothers and sisters, he's now speaking to us now in his word as we hear it read and preached. So what does the Holy Spirit have to say to us? Well, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says. The Spirit says today, verse 7 of Hebrews 3, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 
years. Now, what the Holy Spirit is doing here is inspiring the author to write down is Psalm 95. And the ears of the Hebrew Christians that are hearing this epistle read or this letter read, their ears would have perked up because this is a psalm that they were very familiar with. Regularly on the Sabbath in the synagogue, the whole service would be started out with a call to worship. And Psalm 95 was very often one of those psalms that was read. The first half of it is this call to worship. Actually, Russ read it this morning, didn't he, for us? And so it's this call to worship. And then the second half of Psalm 95 is this warning not to harden your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness wanderings and thus have the word of God just deflect off of your heart rather than receive it as the word of the covenant-keeping God. And so it's, it's this warning not to desensitize or, or let their hearts become callous towards God and His Word that they might rebel against it. And Psalm 95, and then here in Hebrews chapter 3, it's a reference back to a specific historic incident, incident in, in Israel's history. And you say, wait, I missed that. Well, let me, let me show it to you. The reason that you're missing it is because what's quoted here is the Septuagint version of Psalm 95, the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so that's what you have here. It's not, that's most likely um, the version of the Old Testament that these Hebrew Christians would have been familiar with. And so you'll see there in verse 8, he says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And here's what we're missing by having it be in the Septuagint. That word, Hebrew scholars tell us, Rebellion there in the Hebrew Scriptures can be translated as rebellion. And that word testing there uh, can be translated in the Hebrew it Massa. Meribah and Massa. These are historic places and locations. Now let me prove that to you. If you don't remember that from when Russ read it earlier in the service, when he read Psalm 95, turn with me to Psalm 95. And you'll see what I'm talking about in verse 8. Psalm 95, verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, now here we go, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. Or as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. So the words are in the Greek translated as testing and rebellion, and that's what we have there in Hebrews chapter 3. But if we go back to Psalm 95, and these Jews would have known this, we're being pointed back to a historical incident in which the people of Israel in the wilderness rebelled against God. And so that's where the author wants our minds to go. And I know most of us, our, our, our history, our recollection of Israel's history is pretty fuzzy. So I actually want to take you there. Exodus 17, where the incident of Meribah and Massa takes place. It's the second book in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, excuse me, the third book in your Bible. I can count. Pastor math. Leviticus. Nope, I'm sorry. I do want you to go to Exodus. <laughs> I had it right. Exodus 17, not Leviticus 17. Exodus 17, second book of the Bible. And let me give you a little context as you're turning there. We're only three chapters removed from when the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. That happened in Exodus 14. Exodus 15, 
the people sing this song of Moses. They're rejoicing over the deliverance that God has brought about. Uh, then he gives them manna from heaven, but then they start to get thirsty. And so what happens? Well, look at Exodus 17, verse 1 with me. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. They're most likely just following the cloud of, of pillar, the pillar that uh, led them by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night from place to place and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Uh-oh, here's our problem. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? See, by questioning Moses and his leadership, they're ultimately not testing Moses. They're testing the Lord. Why? Because Moses is God's representative to the people, and Moses is also the people's representative to God. It's that apostle and high priest language that we saw earlier in Hebrews chapter 3. So you're testing the Lord. Look, he's provided for you every step of the way, saying, I love you, I'm going I'm to care for you. And he's shown that time and time again, and yet here you are testing him. Lord, are you going to provide for us this time? Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They immediately go off the rails. Why are we here? We can't really trust you. You're just trying to kill us. Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. If you can avoid it, don't ever try to be a mediator. You end up getting stoned, crucified, something bad's going to happen. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He strikes the rock, and he called the name of the place, look at this, Massa and Meribah. And do you have that footnote? Massa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What are we seeing here? We're seeing the hard-heartedness of God's people. Man, they just saw all these incredible things that God did, and already they're hardening their hearts towards Him and not trusting Him. We can't trust your character, Lord. Are you really going to provide for us in this? We should just kill Moses, get a different leader, and go back to Egypt. They've barely even started the journey, and here they are, going into rebellion. Why? Because their hearts are hard. Right? What do we want? We want soft hearts, fleshly hearts. Jeremiah says, our problem in Adam is that we have a heart of stone that deflects God's word, and we need a heart of flesh that receives God's word. We need to be like, have you ever seen someone put a, a seal in hot wax on a letter or a parchment or something? Take that seal and push it in there. It receives that impression well if the wax is hot and soft and pliable. But if it's cold and hard, what happens? That seal will just slide right off. It won't receive the impression. And that's the people of Israel's hearts here. Word of God just being deflected. Not remembering how he's caring for them or how he said that he would lead them into the promised land and care for them every step of the way. And yet, you know, I wish we could leave it there and say that's as bad as their unbelief got, but it gets even worse. 
And I won't have you turn there right now. We'll turn there a little bit later. But we see that really the height, the apex of, the apex of their unbelief in Numbers chapter 14. And here's the crazy thing. They're right on the border of Canaan. All they have to do is cross the Jordan and boom, they're in the promised land. But what do they do instead in Numbers 13? They say, we can't trust the Lord. We don't know that he's going to... We need to scope this out before we just go running into the promised land. So what do they do? They send out 12 spies on a 40-day reconnaissance mission. And then come back and tell us what you think. Well, they come back and all of the spies agree... Man, this land is exactly what God had promised. And it's literally flowing with milk and honey. So it's incredible. But here's the problem. Ten of those 12 spies then went on to say, but here's the problem. There's no way we can take that land. It's too fortified. They've got people there that are giants. They're the sons of Anak. They're descendants of the Nephilim. There's no way we can take the land. And here's the problem. The people of Israel believe those ten spies. Instead of who? The two, Joshua and Caleb, that say, the Lord will be with us. He will keep his promise. Let's go and do this. To which the people of Israel say, we're we're a bunch of slaves. We were just in slavery, not that. We're not warriors. And so then in, in Numbers 14, the people of Israel are weeping. They're crying. They're like, what have you done, Moses? What has the Lord done? And so they want to kill Moses and Aaron. They want to kill Joshua and Caleb. And appoint a different leader and go back to Egypt. Go back to the place of their slavery. And so Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb fall on their faces just filled with sorrow. Moved to repentance that the people are responding to God's word this way. They tear their clothes. And then God shows up and says, all right, Moses, that's it. I'm wiping them out. Every single one of them. I'm going to destroy them. I, I, they have despised me for the last time. And so then what, is, what does Moses do? He says, Lord, no, no, no. What's going to happen if you do that is the Egyptians are going to know you delivered these people just to kill them all in the wilderness and never take them into the promised land and to worship you. And so remember your character. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. Remember your covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob and forgive your people, Lord. And so what does the Lord do? He does. He forgives them. Why does he forgive them? Not because they're so great and lovable and wonderful and just trusting him all the time, but because of his character. I will keep my promise to your forefathers. But do you see this rebellion? And how is it summarized? Go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and look at verse 9. When your fathers, this generation that saw these things, put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, they put me to the test. Who are these people? They're God's creatures made from the dust of the earth by him. They had the the breath of life breathed into them by him. And, And not only are they dust, but they're rebellious dust. Who says, God, we're not going to listen to you. We know better than you. You never take care of us. We can't trust you. You're not really good. And so we're going to take matters into our own hands. What are we doing every time we sin? We're testing the Lord. We can't trust your word. We can't trust your character. Who are we? Think of how audacious this is for rebellious dust. 
to talk back and test the unchanging, loving, merciful, gracious creator and sustainer of all who has now redeemed his people. And here they are putting into the test. Even after all that God has shown them, the height of their arrogance and their rebellion. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. I was talking with somebody about this this morning. It's so easy for us to look at Israel and say, how dare they do this? I can't believe it. Brothers and sisters, we have experienced a greater exile. Not from Pharaoh. And we've got a greater rest coming. Not a promised land. We've, been, we've experienced an exile from the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we're headed to bliss with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And yet in this wilderness period, we have the audacity to test the Lord, don't we? And he brings suffering, trials, temptations. I know some of you have to, right now, are going through incredible suffering. But who are we to test him? He has every right to test us. But who are we to test him? He, knows, he sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. We don't even really know how to love ourselves or one another, do we? But he does. He knows what's best for us. And yet here's the height of Israel's rebellion, and here's the height of our rebellion. We don't trust the Lord, and we test him. And here's the sad reality. In light of their rebellion, God responds in wrath. And so we don't just need to remember Israel's rebellion. We then need to go on to remember God's response of wrath, which is our second point. So let's look then at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. So in response to Israel's Rebellion, the Lord is angry. Angry with who? Angry with that generation that saw everything that the Lord did. Day after day, miracle after miracle, provision after provision. And still they test Him, rebel because of their hardness of heart. And so the Lord is angry with them. He's provoked by them. We should never want to provoke the Lord, should we? Now the Lord doesn't get angry like you and I get angry. The Lord is using, condescending to use language that we can understand, right? My anger and your anger, we fly off the handle. It's unrighteous more often than not. That's not what's happening here with the Lord. He's using language that we can understand in how finite language, so we can understand how an infinite God is relating to a finite people. And in order to do that, he's got to use finite language, doesn't he? Language that we can understand. But he's angry. And he's angry because why? Well, look at the second half of verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. The problem is the heart. The heart becoming hard and not receptive. The heart, rather than walking in the Lord's ways, they have not known my ways. Rather than that heart that reflects and meditates on God's covenant faithfulness to his people, time and time and time again, that heart reflects on the circumstances and sufferings around them and gives more attention to that than to the Lord and His covenant faithfulness. And so as a result, they don't walk in the Lord's ways, do they? Instead, what do they do? Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us have turned to our own 
way. That is the disposition of the natural human fallen heart. To turn away from the Lord and rebel against Him. And here are His covenant people interacting with Him in this way. They, it's, like, it's like all of these things that the Lord has, had done for them had never even happened. That's how they're interacting with Him. And so how does the Lord respond? Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a reference to the punishment that the Lord promises, the judgment that he will bring upon Israel in Numbers 14. So let's turn back there very briefly. Had to fight off the urge all week to walk you through all of Numbers 14 because it's so powerful. I encourage you in the coming week to look at it yourself. Numbers 14, we're just going to look at verses 20 through 24. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses. Moses serves as this mediator, represents the people to God, pleads their case, appeals to God's character. And the Lord says, all right, I will pardon them and forgive them. But then he goes on to say, I am going to punish them. Brothers and sisters, our sin does have consequences, doesn't it? But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord... So as sure as God is the living God, and as sure as His glory will cover all the earth, this is what's going to happen. He's basically swearing by Himself. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times. It's not for one incident, it's for repeated again and again and again. Ten times. And have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. Who will, though, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. God goes on to say, I I will bring your descendants, I will bring your kids into this, but you won't see it. Now, the book of Numbers elsewhere tells us about 600,000 men, just men, uh, above the age of 20, who who saw and experienced these things from the the exodus out of Egypt and the the times in the wilderness. So think about that. Of the million and a half people coming out of exile, 600,000 of them falling dead in the wilderness over 40 years. Tragic. So that only two of that generation actually get to go in. Brothers and sisters, as the author of the book of Hebrews says elsewhere, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is meant to be a warning to us that God is not to be trifled with. His word is not to be dismissed lightly. We're not to let grumbling come out of our mouths lightly or or murmurings in our heart that test the Lord and His character and His promises to us. We're not to take that lightly. Why? Because the Lord is just. And He is a God who, who does punish. And behold the punishment that He brings upon His people for their rebellion and hard heartedness in testing Him. Now here's the thing. How does this further the argument of the author of the book of Hebrews. Well, again, think about it. Jesus' covenant is a better covenant. He's brought about a better exile, and He's bringing us to a better rest. 
And so while we're in the wilderness, if they under the old covenant, under Moses, were punished this way in the wilderness for their unfaithfulness, for their hard-heartedness, for wanting to bail on the Lord, reject Him and His leaders, and go back to the land of their slavery, what do you think awaits those in the new covenant? The servant's not overseeing this. The Son is. The Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity. You thought that wrath was bad. How about this? It's supposed to make us tremble before the living God and His Word. It's ratcheting up. This is, how much greater will the punishment be? He's made this argument before in the book of Hebrews. He's going to make it again and again and again. Why? Because we need to hear it. Because brothers and sisters, we're tempted in the wilderness to act the same way, aren't we? Turn away from the Lord. Distrust Him. And so we need to hear. Be warned. They fell in the wilderness. Don't think that you won't. You say, wait a minute. Are you saying I can lose my salvation? No, I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. But here's what I am saying. If you don't endure to the end, you know what you're showing? You never had, you were never saved to begin with. No doubt Jesus will keep his until the very end. He will not lose one that the Father has given him. But if you don't endure to the end, what does that mean? And this has already happened in this church that the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to. Some had bailed. They went back to Judaism. They went back to the slavery that God brought them out of. They didn't continue through the, the wilderness. They, they went back. And so they were lost forever. And here's the thing. If they won't be saved in Jesus, hiding from God's wrath there, they have no shelter and no hope of refuge. It's only in Jesus that you can hide from God's wrath because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus in full for the sins of all the elect. So we should tremble. And we should understand, this is hard to say, that in a church this size, there are going to be people like this who do not endure to the end, who bail on Christ, His gospel, His church, the Word of God. This will happen. It at sovereign grace. I pray it doesn't. But in a group this size, it's, it's most likely a sure thing that, that that's going to happen. Breaks my heart. Now, that's the way that this warning works for those who are not elect. What about the elect? Does this have anything to say to me if I can't lose my salvation? Yes, because you should tremble at the word of God. You should tremble before it. And understand that this is one of the means that Jesus uses to keep you. Your heart should tremble at this. But don't get lost forever in yourself thinking, well, now I've got to go on an idle hunt and knock them all over and destroy them. No, Jesus is going to sanctify you. You're not going to be perfect but he's going to sanctify you and he's going to keep you until the very end. And one of the ways that he keeps you and preserves you is by having you tremble and respond in faith and repentance to this warning. This has a lot to say to the church, doesn't it? All right, so we've seen how we need to remember Israel's rebellion, how we need to remember God's wrath, and then lastly, let's see how we need to remember our responsibility. And as I said in the introduction, there's a personal responsibility that we have, we'll see in verse 12, and then there's a corporate responsibility we have, and we'll see that in verse 13, but I want to look at each one of these in turn. So look at verse 12 then, so that we see how we're reminded of our personal responsibility. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So we are supposed to keep watch over ourselves, to, to, to keep watch over our hearts as they, they do. There's this partial hardening that happens in each and every one of us, isn't there? Even as Christians. Why? Because there's this war happening between the flesh and the spirit. And we want to be engaged in that fight, softening our hearts with God's word, with gospel promises, with fellowship with other believers, with sitting under the word as it's taught. We want our hearts to be softened again and again, and they need to be. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning and do uh, spend time in the, in the word with the Lord, I feel like I'm tilling hard ground, right? Man, is there any life here? <laughs> Sometimes my heart feels that hard. And yet the Lord uses that means and he softens it. And he draws me to himself and shows me things about himself that I need to know so that I can persevere in the wilderness. His trials and temptations come my way. And so we need to keep an eye on ourselves. Watch ourselves. Now, how do you do this? You're in the word. You're in the means of grace. The means that Jesus has given you so that you can endure, those are the means that he will use through them so that you do endure. So who in the world are we to to remove ourselves from those? It's the worst thing we can do for ourselves. Don't follow your feelings. Know who you are in Jesus and then live the way that he says that you are. Even if you don't feel it. Maybe the feelings will come later, maybe they won't, but that doesn't matter. Who are you? You're a child of the living God. And then this is how a child of the living God lives. So let's get to living that way. But this evil, unbelieving heart, we, we, don't, want, we don't want that. We, we should be terrified of that. Why? Because it will lead you to fall away from the living God. May God spare any in our number from that happening to them. And let us be on guard, taking this warning seriously. So that's our personal responsibility, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 13. He reminds us that there's also a corporate responsibility, isn't there? Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, not just on Sunday, not just when you go to grace group, every single day. As long as it is called today, as long as we're in this wilderness period. How long are we in the wilderness period? Till Jesus comes back or we close our eyes in death. So that's how long you have to do this. Every single day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what the problem is with my personal responsibility? I can't do it by myself. Why? Sin is so deceitful that, that, that when I start to sin, what happens, the reformers would say, is I turn in on myself. And so my, I am my own standard. And I think what I do is just fine. But then you come around. You say, Jason, 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 look at Jesus a second. Oh, 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 okay. Look at God's word. You're not living the way you're supposed to. And then I'm reminded, these blinders I had, I was deceived by my sin. And you helpfully pointed that out to me. I'm not talking about nitpicking. Right? Not talking about being the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. But we should be involved in each other's life enough to the point where when I start to see you drift or your heart become hardened, or I'm concerned about some of the things that are going on in your life, I should love you enough 
to say something to you. I experienced that this week. Dear brother took me out to lunch, and he, out of the blue, sort of told me, like, hey, I'm kind of worried about this. And I was like, whoa. Once I had swallowed my pride a little bit, I went, you know what? You're exactly right. And I'm going to work on that. Thank you for loving me enough and taking your corporate responsibility seriously. Why? Because we're family. We're family. That is a reality that we have to learn to live in light of. Jesus shed his blood as our older brother so that we're brought into the family of God, adopted by the Father, and the same Holy Spirit dwells within us. So we have a responsibility to point out the sins to one another. Again, wisely, patiently, don't do it like constantly. Every time I see that person, I tell them about this sin that's happening in their life. A different one every single... That's not what we're talking about. But when the warning flags go up and you see, man, you're starting to drift, hold fast. Look to Jesus. And hopefully what I'm doing is I'm just reminding you of who you are in Jesus and saying, that's inconsistent with this. And so repent of it and turn back because I know you're not going to see it by yourself necessarily because of the deceitfulness of sin. So do you see what an encouragement this is? And I just want to end here because you know what the problem with these kind of sermons and these kind of warnings are? There's those of you out there who are super sensitive in your conscience and you think this warning is just crushing you and so you're going to turn all inward like I just talked about. And then those of you who I wish your ears were perked up a little bit more to hear what I'm saying right now, and took it to heart rather than leaving and thinking about what you're going to have for lunch? You don't, you don't hear any of this. And so I can't do anything about that second part other than pray. But I do want to help those in that first category. This is not an encouragement for you to look at yourself. Right? I think the problem with this audience is that they're looking at themselves and they've lost sight of Jesus. And so like the Israelites before them, they're like, we can't do this, so we're going back to what's comfortable and safe, even if it is slavery. So get your eyes off of yourself and look to Jesus. If, if we're told to consider Israel here, which is kind of what we're told to do, right? We better end up back at verse 1 of chapter 3 where it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Israel for a short period of time and end up with your gaze back on Jesus because the problem is they've taken their gaze off of Jesus. And if they continue in that path, they're going to fall away from the living God. So get your gaze back on Him. Get your gaze back on Him. The one who says what? I've begun a good work in you. I've had a great beginning. And I'm, I know you're in the wilderness right now. And I know you're tempted. I know you're tried. I know sometimes you're tempted. You're like, is this stuff even real? This warning is not meant to smack you around, Christian, as you're struggling against sin. Because every Christian in here this morning is struggling against sin and will be until that Sabbath rest happens. Then that partial hardening will be completely and fully eradicated. Praise be to God. And we will have unbroken, perfect fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Canaan was meant to point us to. And that's what awaits us. So, but as you're tested and tried, you're even going to sin in the wilderness, aren't you? So repent and look to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Because He is your Sabbath rest. And He will complete that work until He comes back. So don't look at your circumstances Don't look at yourself. Look at him. That's the accurate response to this warning.
Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're so thankful that you love your glory and you love us enough to warn us in this way. We know that we are in a culture and we are a people who are very weak, can't often stand hard sayings. It's an attack on our self-esteem. We thank you that we can trust the wounds that you inflict because you heal them. So do your work amongst your people. Break bones that have been set and not healed properly so that we can be healthy. Move us to repentance, to look to you, but drive us by your Holy Spirit out of ourselves. May we not focus on ourselves as Israel did, but be driven to the end of ourselves by your law and run to Jesus because he was faithful where Israel failed to be. And he is the Passover lamb who shed his blood so that your wrath passes over us. And he is the one who carries us into our Sabbath rest. May we endure to the end, we pray. Thank you that you will bring that about in us as your people. And may we respond now in joy and gratitude and thankfulness and experience peace because we know who you are and who we are in light of this good news. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.